David, it is about damn time that we did an episode on term sheets. <laughs> I feel like this is like a, in the life cycle of every person who is a venture capitalist and also either has a blog or a podcast. Or, you, know, you eventually you do the episode or the blog post on term sheets. It's like writing a power ballad or something as a yeah. as a rock star. It's like everybody has to try it once. <laughs> oh man. It usually doesn't age well. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Well, well, listeners, we should mention we're super excited to be doing this episode because I think if we did 20 LP episodes on different things in in the life cycle of starting a company, running a company, getting a company funded, and didn't touch on a high-level overview of term sheets, we would be doing a massive disservice to a, a hugely important thing to understand in the entrepreneurial journey. And we should also say that if you are starting a company and are about to go through a fundraising process, uh, I highly recommend, and I know David does as well, reading Brad Feld and Jason Mendelson's book, Venture Deals. It is a, a Bible on the subject. And I think today we will skim across the top of, a, of some of these things and, and talk about uh, what a term sheet is and a lot of the more practical nuances of it. But if you really want to dive into the very, very sophisticated uh, nature of it, couldn't recommend that book more. We talked about this a little bit on uh, Slack, for those of you who are on Slack. I feel like Slack has been great lately, by the way. So much great conversations. Thank you, everyone, for participating. So with the LP shows, I feel like things are going really well. And we are. We realized it had been a little while since we've had so many great guests on for interviews. It had been a while since we'd done an LP show with just us around a company building topic. So that's what we're doing today. And we're going to try and settle into a cadence of about a third, a third, a third of shows like this that are Ben and I discussing a, a company building topic, a third interviews with operators at startups and big tech companies, and a third uh, interviews with investors and their perspective. So let us know if you uh, are liking that mix and we'll keep going. Yeah, and we reserve the right to talk about non-company building topics too, because I think uh, David, we thought this was going to be a little bit more. I think we're starting out, it's like, hey, sometimes like we'll just record our phone calls. We haven't done as much of that, but I think you know we may do those from time to time, and we'll give you a heads up if it's going to be uh, a little less structured like that. Yeah. Well, term sheets. Yeah. So uh, we're going to structure this a little bit, at least the opener, in kind of a Q and A with uh, uh, me to David. My first question to you, David, is. What is a term sheet and what's it for and when's it happen? <laughs> so term sheets uh, are sort of a, a mythical creature in the venture and startup world. Everybody talks about, you know, getting term sheets and it's a, a pivotal moment uh, used to refer to lots of things. But a term sheet is specifically, it is, it is a non-binding document. It is a literally what the name says it is. It is a sheet with a set of terms for negotiation on it for a potential investment. And it is typically given by a venture capital firm or uh, angel or a group of angels to a company. And those are the terms at which they are going to offer to invest in the company. And why it's such a big deal is that when a firm does that, when an investor does that, they are saying, yes, I have gotten over the hump. You have gone, you have flipped from no to yes, I want to invest in your company. And then a negotiation kicks off on what are the terms on which you invest. But just getting to that point is like probably 90%, 95% of the work in terms of raising money. Once you get your first term sheet, then that drives a uh, FOMO from other investors who are considering potentially investing, they have to make a decision about whether they are also going to get you term sheets. And typically, that is what the first one that comes in kind of cascades the process. So non-binding, you say? Ah, uh, uh, yes. Tell me about that. Non-binding. So mechanically, the term sheet is not legally binding, nor is it what what is the actual governing documents of the investment that is made, it is literally just the set of terms for negotiation. So you have to have a vehicle to put out terms so that you can go back and forth and negotiate. And that's what happens over a period of a you know day or a week or so. And then you ship it off to the lawyers and you say, turn this term sheet, this set of terms, into a set of binding legal documents. And this is after it's been signed and countersigned by both the investor and the entrepreneur. Then you hand it off to the lawyers. Exactly, exactly. And then the lawyers draw up a set of documents, always including a stock purchase agreement, which is a much larger 
document that governs the terms of the the purchase of stock by the investor, but also amending the company's certificate of incorporation. And usually there's an investor rights agreement and a few other ancillary docs. There's like eight to 10 different docs that get generated here. Depends. I mean, I've seen it as few as like three, but it could be up to eight or 10. And all this from the term sheet. So how on a single piece of paper could they possibly lay out all of the the, the terms of investment that will then get translated into these dozens, if not hundreds of pieces of paper that serve as the quote unquote definitive documents? It's amazing the alchemy that these lawyers can do. <laughs> we love it. We love our lawyer friends, especially our great sponsors, Perkins Coie. They do a fantastic job uh, turning term sheets into binding legal documents. Yes, it is amazing how these things expand. And the, the one point I'm trying to drive home here is you will get a term sheet and it is very unlikely that that term sheet will be a sheet. It's probably about eight pages um, uh, somewhere in that. Well, that's changing as we'll go, th- as we'll go through. Actually, this is a good point. Um, before we dive into, so we're going to go through an actual term sheet, but before we do that, let's talk about the history of term sheets. So Ben and I were joking before the show, Brad references uh, Brad and Jason in, in the Venture Deals book that the first technically term sheet it was a letter of an offer to invest right uh in uh in deck in digital equipment corporation yeah man throwback that would be a fun episode to do deck someday oh man granddaddy of them all (laughs) uh but yes it was a uh it was a letter right i think that's right i think that's right the sheet the the term sheet had not been coined yet and actually, we should say like term sheet is a thing that predates a lot of definitive agreements, not just for a financing, also for M&A events, also for a lot of other transactions. So we should note that we're zooming in on the notion of the term sheet that is used as the canonical uh, moment in time when an investor indicates they want to invest in a company. Yeah, a venture capital investor. So yeah, the, from that very first term sheet, which wasn't even a term sheet, it was a, a letter to invest, what, $70,000 in deck for seventy. 70- eight percent of the company some enormous percent oh my god wow times have changed so from that then term sheets kind of exploded after that i remember when i first joined madrona our standard term sheet was like been like you're referring to like eight pages and had tons of terms and docs in there to now it's been like way winnowed back down and i feel like this is part of the pendulum swinging back in favor of startups and founders recently about being more founder friendly so that our standard term sheet at wave uh, is based off the um, standard series seed term sheet which we will go through in a bit on the show Uh, it is two pages and is very simple and straightforward these things ebb and flow so I want to talk before diving into the terms about sort of the mechanics of and the timeline of how this all goes down so you know you're going through your your fundraising process you get a term sheet. You may get multiple. Hopefully, knock on wood, you get you get multiple. So you get to sort of pick what investor that that you want to go with. David, you were mentioning sort of within a, a day or a week, decide to sign it, and the investor signs it as well. But you know, just because you signed that doesn't mean the money's in the bank. There's then a sort of two to four week period where um, the company's counsel and the investor's counsel are going back and forth, making sure that they are. Uh, being true to the term sheet, but also representing uh, the interests of both parties as they draft the definitive documents. And, uh, you know, there's a little bit of back and forth there, but hopefully the term sheet lays out enough in specificity that nothing can really go wrong to blow up the deal in drafting the definitive documents. I would say occasionally people don't do a term sheet and they agree to something over email and they kick it over to lawyers. That might leave a little bit too much ambiguity, but if the parties know each other really well, then it's a a nice way to not have to, to go through this. I've actually never seen that happen. Have you seen that happen? I have. I have. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. You know, the more you lay it out in the term sheet, the less squinting and guessing that uh, uh, the law firms have to do later. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing to, to also clarify here that I think wouldn't be obvious to people who haven't been through this, both the company hires counsel, hires lawyers, and the investors uh, the lead investor, usually representing all investors, hire separate counsel as well versus just one counsel drafting everything because it's kind of it's it's just like buying a house. It's like a real estate transaction. You have like the seller's agent and the buyer's agent. If you only have one agent, then one party could get screwed. So you need an agent representing each uh, the interests of each party. Yep. It should also be noted. And uh, uh, when I was a first time CEO, this was surprising to me. You get a term sheet. You negotiate it. You come to terms, you both sign. 
the thing I didn't realize was it was then on me, the entrepreneur, to call my lawyers and say, all right, can you turn this into some definitive documents? Here is, uh, I'm adding the uh, the investor's counsel to this thread as well. I sort of assumed because the investor issued the term sheet that the investor would tell their counsel to start drafting definitive documents. But no, actually, the, the company counsel then starts doing that and takes a first stab at it. Yep, that is how it goes. All right. Well, we could talk about the minutiae uh, <laughs> uh, details around term sheets, surrounding term sheets all day, but should we actually dive in and talk about a term sheet? Just to put a total pin on it, after that, you know, two to four weeks, give or take some time uh, goes by, uh, the definitive documents come out, everyone signs those. That is the the day that the uh, money is actually wired and the company gets, gets funded, which is the time for everyone to uh, both celebrate, get to work, pop the champagne, do whatever it is. But that is the you know, you end up with sort of a, a month from uh, um, all this turn sheet nonsense to when the money's actually in the bank. All right. Diving oh, in. One more caveat before Ugh. we dive in. All we're right. talking about, I know, I know, I'm sorry. Uh, we're talking <laughs> about equity term sheets here. So you may be familiar with safes or convertible debt, although safes are almost nobody uses convertible debt anymore. I think it's just safes. Those are not equity investments, not legal agreements, their debt. Those happen like right away. That's like a they were designed as a very simple, easy instrument. So you can sign and wire same day and all of the the whole agreement is contained within the sheet that describes the safe. It's not like the term sheet that then goes to be used by the lawyers to create legal docs. Yes, this is for a uh, equity purchase, otherwise known as a priced round. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature a Allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout quarters. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, no E, Q-U-A-R-T-R dot com slash acquired. Or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team. Our thanks to quarter. Okay, so listeners, if you want to follow along blow by blow here, uh, we will put a link in the show notes, but we're going to use the standard series seed term sheet and go through that. This was developed, I think, originally by Ted Wang, who was a partner at Fenwick and West, one of the great you know Silicon Valley law firms. He wanted to open source these term sheets because this was like proprietary knowledge. Like each firm had their own term sheet and they didn't share it with anyone. <laughs> he wanted to open source, you know? yeah, like why and like entrepreneurs didn't know you know what was in there. Uh, he wanted to standardize and open source these term sheets, so he created the SeriesSeed.com uh, and maintained it. He then, I think, in 2014, left Fenwick and uh, joined the VC firm Cowboy uh, Ventures as a partner. Since then, Cooley, which is another 
great Silicon Valley law firm, uh, they've kind of taken over stewardship of the open source series seed documents. They forked, uh, it's on GitHub, they forked the original uh, repo and um, created the Cooley fork, which is the most kind of up-to-date today. I will also talk about how we've adapted it for our term sheet at Wave, uh, but we we based ours off of the Cooley stored current version of series seed. So we'll link to all this in the show notes. So begins uh, David and I trying to read a legal document on air and make make <laughs> oh, for <yeah>. good radio. <laughs> this is so exciting. Okay, well, so let's let's jump in. So the 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 first under offering terms, the first term here is securities to issue and shares of a new series of preferred stock of the company, the quote unquote series seed. Pretty self explanatory. As just saying, the type of stock that uh, the investors will be buying is a new series of preferred stock to be called the series seed. And it's preferred stock as opposed to common stock because it will have a set of preferences associated with it uh, that common stock does not have. David, I didn't mean it literally mean like read. Like I, we could, we could do maybe like I'm the just titles. following directions here. <laughs> but yes, the, okay. the important bit to know here is that the, the preferred stock is a different class of stock than the, the employees hold that, uh, um, that Founders has a, employees, a, yeah. a uh, yes, exactly. That, that has a preference. So it is sort of the uh, first money out off the stack if um well we'll get into more specifics we'll get but it, yeah. but it has a whole set of rights associated with it that uh, common stock does not all right aggregate proceeds right. okay this is how much money you're raising an important detail in the standard series seed term sheet there's then a bunch of language about in addition you know some amount of convertible securities are converting this is if you've raised safes or or convertible debt before doing this price round which a lot of companies do these days this is where the investors would put in uh, what happens to to those what rights do they get do they get all the rights that the new investors in the series seed get do they get some of the rights depends deal by deal Okay, purchasers, this governs, uh, this is just saying who is buying. So, so far we've gotten, uh, when people say something like, oh, I'm raising a two on 10. Uh, so far we have covered the two, but not the on 10 and the uh, different things that that could mean. Yeah, some which we are about to get into. So, okay, the most important, we're going to talk about all of the rights and preferences in this term sheet, but by far the most important piece is valuation. Well, it's how much you're raising at what valuation and thus how much dilution you're taking, what percentage of the company you're selling for that money. In the standard series seed term sheet, this is captured here in this price per share term. We actually changed this in our version because we wanted to be much more clear about spelling out like what is the valuation (laughs) uh, that we're investing at and how much of the company are we buying. Uh, So we just structured ours a little differently there, but it's the same thing. What this is saying, so in the standard term sheet here, it talks about a pre-money valuation. The price per share will be based on a pre-money valuation of some amount uh, and including an available option pool of another amount. So, okay, what does this mean? You're laying out the pre-money valuation of the company. You then invest the money to get to a post-money valuation there are lots of other blog posts that talk about this math. The pre-money uh, plus the money. <laughs> plus the money. Anyway, it, it boils down to the percentage of the company you are selling is the amount of money you are raising divided by the post-money valuation of the company. So if, say, you're raising $2 million at a $10 million post-money valuation, you are selling 2 divided by 10, 20% of the company. We'll come back to option pool in a sec. And so, you know, when I was first dipping my toe into this whole thing, the notion that there was a pre-money and a post-money, why isn't there just one valuation? Like, this thing makes no <laughs> sense. And it's interesting because if you think about it, you know, I'm sitting here today on April 4th. I, I'm going to keep sticking with these same numbers here. My company's worth $10 million, hypothetically. And tomorrow we get $2 million in cash. So tomorrow we've got the $10 million that's actually uh, the intrinsic value of the company, theoretically. Plus, now in our bank account, we have another $2 million, so we have to be worth $12 million. And it's one of these wild things that uh, because the cash was added to the company, even though the intrinsic value didn't change, you now have the intrinsic value plus the cash. Yeah. So, okay. I hate all of this. <laughs> I think <laughs> my view is that this whole concept is way overcomplicated and was originally dreamed up and explained by finance people, not by startup people. And forget all of it. Here's what you need to know. So we do our term sheet differently. We do post-money valuation only. Pre-money valuation is is like a myth. It, it's like, forget it. All that matters is the post-money valuation. Because that's how you think about your your dilution. 
Exactly. Exactly. So the post money valuation is the denominator in the equation about how much you're selling. And so what we say when we invest, we, our term sheet says the post money valuation is X, $10 million. Just to keep going with the same example, it would be 12 in that thing I was referencing before. But oh, yes. yeah, and the thing you were referencing, but to keep the math easy, we'll say it's, we'll say it's 10. Um, when I joined Madrona and, and back in the day, all of our term sheets were based on pre-money valuation. That's just how it was done in the industry. But the problem with that is if you change how much you're raising, <laughs> which often happens through a series of, you know, the negotiations, you get term sheets from a bunch of people. You're like, I like you. You're going to be a lead. But I like some of these other people, too. Maybe they'll come in and be smaller pieces. Maybe we'll increase the amount of money we're raising or, you know, whatever. As the amount you raise change, if you fixed set in stone the pre-money valuation and not the post-money the percentage of the company that you're selling and the percentage of company that investors are buying is changing. <laughs> and uh, that's just stupid. So basically the whole industry over the last couple of years, I don't know why the series seed documents hasn't made this shift too, has just moved to like, we negotiate the post money valuation and we negotiate how much you're raising and that's it. It's fixed. So our term sheets are Wavel, like our, our typical term sheet, Wavel invest $2 million at a post money valuation of $10 million, we are buying 20% of the company. If you then want to raise more money into the round, like have some angels in or whatever, and raise more money, totally fine. You can sell shares to them as well, we'll say up to a certain amount. But the post money valuation stays the same. So you're saying like, I'm going to sell, say you sell another 500,000 to other folks, you're selling another 5% of the company to them. It just makes it like waste cleaner and simpler and easy. Like this is the valuation I'm selling the percentage of the company based on the dollars I'm raising. So David, how does that work mechanically? If uh, Let's talk about timeline and then we'll get back into moving through the the term sheet here. But let's say, and and let's readjust my previous example. So now we're talking about a a two on 10 post or sort of if we were in pre-land, it'd be eight, but we're going to fix the post at 10. So there's a term sheet. It says that the amount that I'm going to raise is two. The the, the post money is going to be 10. How does it work with an entrepreneur talking with a venture capitalist about what that lead investor's allocation is going to be versus other people? Does that happen before the term sheet, after the term sheet? Does it get worked out while definitive docs are getting worked out? Where does that all happen? Definitely before definitive docs, but somewhere between before during the courting process and then during and after the term sheet during the negotiation process. So typically a lead investor like us at Wave, we have an ownership that we we want to lead. We want to be the majority investor in the round. We have an ownership target. We say we want to buy you know X percentage of the company, in this case, 20% for our $2 million. That's fixed. That is what it is. And then we say, you know, if there are other people, other great people who we want involved in the company on the cap table as investors, let's bring those folks in. And you as an entrepreneur are welcome to do that. It's kind of up to you to sell how much of the company you want. I see. I see. And do, and and the term sheet doesn't include sort of strict guidelines around, uh, you know, if I then go and say, okay, cool, I, I sold another 3 million to these other great... <laughs> yes. No, we do within, within uh, guardrails. So <laughs> typically in, in our term sheet, we will say, this is how much we're going to invest. And then we typically say, we will leave room for other investors up to a certain amount. Um, so I'm looking at our template term sheet right now. It says, Wave will invest $2 million and other investors can invest up to $250,000. We've done one investment where, no, the smallest any that other groups have done is 300000 but anywhere from 300000 to a million is typically what, uh, what we see. But again, this depends totally on who your lead is, what their strategy is. Some people have higher ownership targets, some people have less. Anywhere from you know zero to in this case, in our toy example, 250,000, uh, you could let other people in. So, so I'm hearing this between two and three and on a 10 post. We haven't talked about options pool yet. We will get there. So is it is it fair to say just from the dilution of capital that what's typical in these sorts of seed rounds is is uh, um, selling 20 to 30% of the company and taking 20 to 30% of dilution from the capital? Yeah, I would say that's, that's what I mean. In some cases, you know, again, depending on how much you're raising from whom, what the company is like, could be slightly less than 20%. I would say average we see is right around 25% in total for the round. Typically, you know, in our case with a lead taking around 20%, but 25% is a good like, that's like middle of the road. And that's as we speak here in spring of 2019, these things also ebb and flow. It is worth noting, yes, that 
there are sort of market terms and uh, all these terms that we'll go through will sort of have, you know, they'll move with the market, but valuation does as well. And so both valuation and percentage ownership um, sort of adjust with with the times. So option pool, as you mentioned, Ben, <laughs> let's talk about that. Before you raise your first money, which presumably a seed round would be, uh, unless you've raised convertible debt before or safes, you as a founding team and any employees you may already have own 100% of the equity in the company. You are then selling however much you just agreed to, as we discussed, to investors. But investors also say, part of raising this money, we're going to need to hire a bunch of people into the company. And those people were going to compensate them, most likely with equity. We carve out an option pool for those future employees to be hired with. And this is, you know, an artifact of history that this is done before investment, but that option pool is carved out before the capital comes in. So you're selling 20, 25%, say, to investors. You are also negotiating with investors about how much of that option pool for future employees you are creating with this round. Now, why is that done before investors invest? In some ways, this is really just a valuation discussion. Like it could be like, oh, we do it afterwards. If you do it after, then the investors take the dilution. Whenever you create an option pool, the existing shareholders get diluted. Yeah, let's pause and say that slowly for a second because I think it's worth dissecting it. Think about if you uh, LPs were were investing in the company and there was no option pool. So it's like, great, I'm going to put $2 million in and it's going to be 10 post. Oh, they want to bring on an employee? Ooh, my 20% just went down to 19%. Ooh, they want to bring out another play? Ooh, it's it's going down. And so this would continue to happen and happen and happen. And of course, it's going to happen later when more investors come in. But what you're basically doing here is you're saying for the next, until we raise the next round, 12 to 18 months, we are creating an amount of shares that's already set aside that happens before our 20% is created so that as you hire people for the duration of the the time that this option pool is is around and and you know you haven't given it all out um, that we aren't getting diluted by these hires and that is sort of the the pretense upon which we are investing it makes much more sense to do this be versus the other way around because you can then have the, the negotiation up front around this of like well what is the right amount of equity for the next you know for this period, the seed stage of the company or the series A stage of the company. And then when we raise the next round of capital, you can think about equity compensation just like cash. You're raising this amount of cash to hire employees and build the company until you reach your next financing milestone. Same thing with equity. Yep. And so David, dive into uh, why why is it a valuation term? How could it be? You can do the math such that your valuation is higher and your option pool is higher or your valuation could be lower and the option pool could be smaller, but ultimately your dilution is the same. <laughs> well, so, okay, let's think about this from an investor perspective. Let's say you are lucky enough, both as an investor and a startup founder, that your company raises lots of money in the future, uh, goes public, has a you know big exit someday. You will need to hire a lot of employees along the way and issue a lot of options. As that happens in the future, every time a new option pool is created, that is dilution to the investors. So you could say all the existing shareholders. So as an investor coming into the company, you are doing the math in your head uh, or in your fund models about like, okay, I'm going to take X amount of dilution, I'm assuming in the future in this company, some of that's going to come from additional capital com- coming in. But some of that is also just going to be coming from option pool refreshes over time. So you could say, well, when we invest upfront here at the very you know seed stage or series A or whatever round you're talking about, we're going to create an artificially really high option pool so that we don't have to worry about that dilution from future employees for a long, long time. Okay, great. If we do that, well, I'm willing to give you a higher valuation uh, because I know I'm going to be taking less dilution from the option pool side of things over time. Now, that would be a really stupid way to <laughs> negotiate and think about things. So yeah, what, I don't what is recommend standard? It. What is sort of like what's market right now for? Uh, l- let's not say what the option pool size is necessarily, but what's what's standard for uh, the amount of time that it should last you when you create an option pool? Two answers to this: the kind of standard quote unquote amount of time is eighteen months ish, like whatever the time is between when you're anticipating raising this round and raising your next round, but 
the right way to do this is in conjunction with a whole plan around like operational and financial milestones of like you exist today or you're raising the seed round today you see it as an example what do you need to look like to be able to raise a series a how much time does that take how much money does that take how many employees does that take and how much associated equity issuing to them does it take i really like this exercise we really like this at wave we do this with all of our companies because even though generally as a rule of thumb like valuations come out around 10 million and option pools come out around 10 percent, and like all this stuff and 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 runway comes out around 18 to 24 months you want to actually build it from the bottom up as it applies to your business if you just say like oh i'm going to do that because that's what everybody else does then you have no plan you know <laughs> uh it's it, much better exactly as you said ben apply it to your business mm-hmm. giving the entrepreneur perspective here it helps you sleep easier at night and it makes you feel like you have your your hands on the controls of the business when you are able to sort of like uh, when you're building your your fundraising materials. If you look at an operating model and say, okay, it, let's say I'm doing a B2B SaaS business, and 18 months after my seed round, I want to go raise a Series A, which means I'd love to have like 1.8 million dollars in annual recurring revenue because I'm I'm hearing that that is uh, is market for for a Series A right now. Okay, great. So what do we have to do as a business to get there? How do we have to staff that? How many salespeople do I need? At what rate am I going to hire them? You can kind of sort of build out this whole operating model. And of course, it's not going to be exactly right. Like you, It's hard to forecast what your revenue build is going to be over time. I mean, this this model is way more accurate than your model of what does the business look like five years from now? We like sort of everyone knows that that's, you know, that's a little hand wavy, but with this, it's really nice because then you have a spreadsheet that says who you need to hire when, how many customers you need to be landing each month. And then you can really understand like, okay, great. Well, what's market rate to hire all those people? Okay. Market rate at this stage, that's going to be this, this on the cash side, this on the equity side. It of course doesn't actually work like this because the business has crazy ebbs and flows, but then you have like a spreadsheet that you can look at with you and your board member and your senior team and uh, frankly the whole company at this point and and try and understand like okay like if what do we just need to do each month to stay on plan and then we'll we'll get there and we we feel that we'll be sitting pretty to it's not like the goal is raising money but usually in these businesses you you do continue to need capital so if you understand that i need to look like a great series a fundable company uh, a year and a half from now we just got to execute the plan yeah the most important benefit of doing this whole exercise is it results in alignment. And I think I've talked about this on the LP show for sure, if not the main show too. Uh, Back when we were starting Wave, Greg McAdoo, who was a longtime partner at Sequoia, the first board member at Airbnb, he gave us the very first piece of advice he gave us. He's an advisor to us now at Wave, was venture is all about alignment. And this is what creates, this exercise is what creates alignment between a founding team and a company and a venture investor and a board member. What it is is that like you create this plan and then you can see every every month, every board meeting, are you on track or not? If you are on track with the plan, great, you have aligned on the plan, everybody should be happy. If you're unhappy, then it's like your own damn fault because, you know, you create you agreed to the plan. But if the company is not performing to plan, then you have a structured, you know, way to have a conversation around like things are not going according to plan and it's not about like you're an idiot or like I'm an idiot. It's like we agreed to the plan. The plan is not like now we need to adjust. It's a fantastic exercise that you certainly can raise money. There are founders and investors who will go through and raise money without doing this exercise, but I really, really don't recommend it because even if you think you're aligned without getting down to brass tacks like this, you may not be. Yeah. Yeah. It saves, it saves any conversation in the future where someone says, oh, I didn't know that's what we were doing. It's like, no, no, no. It's all laid out right here. The plan is the plan until the plan changes. And I think that's some famous, famous aphorism, but like it gives you a grounding upon which to change the plan from. Yep. Totally. Okay. So now listeners might be <laughs> following along here and being like, Ben and David, like guys, we've, we've been talking about this for 30 minutes and you have gotten through technically four terms in this term sheet like what's going on here we have just gotten through 95 percent of the important stuff in a term sheet and negotiating a venture investment all of these other terms are the five (laughs) percent and for a couple reasons one is is because they're often technicalities the other is 
these are market. Like the, we're about to talk about liquidation preference. If this liquidation preference is anything but what David is about to tell me on a series seed term sheet, run for the hills. <laughs> well, it just means somebody's trying to get a non-market deal on one side or the other. Okay, so we'll run through all the rest of these quickly. Liquidation preference, the preference here is what gives rise to the term preferred, preferred stock. stock. Took me a couple of years to figure that one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, so this is saying that investors, uh, by virtue of putting money in, when there is a liquidation makes it sound like a bad thing, but like liquid, like there's a, a liquidity event, an M&A transaction could be a shutdown, but um, any liquidity event, they're entitled to get the dollar amount that they put in back first off the top before the proceeds are then carved up according to percentage ownership in the cap table. And this is a option to get one or the other. So either you can get your money back or you can get your, you know, in this case, 20% ownership in the whole pie. Uh, so in a good outcome, you will, of course, say, uh, yeah, I'm going to take 20% of a billion dollars versus my $2 million I put in. You would, quote unquote, it, convert to common. Exactly, exactly. Uh, in a bad outcome uh, where, say, the company is only selling for like $3 million, you put $2 million in, but you own 20% of the company, you can say, Hey, instead of getting uh, what is that three hundred no six hundred thousand dollars, which would be twenty percent of of uh, three million, I'm going to get my money back first. Um, so this is a protective provision. It's it's uh, downside protection. It's uh, exactly. if 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 everything goes swimmingly well, that nobody pays any attention to this term. It's really only there in case uh, you know there's only a little bit of money there, and people need to fight over who uh, who should get it. Yep, and that for sure happens. Now. It used to be, this term has ebbed and flowed a little bit over the years. It used to be that like sometimes investors would get two times their money back or three times their money back before, you know, whatever. but uh, there'd be other, you know, ways of doing this. Now, this is super common. It's going to be one X liquidation preference, non-participating, anything else is way off market. Yep. Um, and it's worth briefly touching on this sits on the quote unquote preference stack, sort of one level above the common stock. Every single round where you raise more money, uh, that is an additional uh, uh, preference on top of the stack. And so for all those uh, computer scientists listening listening out there, you build up the stack and then you pop off the stack and it happens in that order. So it's a last money in, first money out stack with uh, the common and then all of the equity rounds. So it's common A, B, C, D, on and on and on, and then debt on top of that. Sometimes that's different, but yeah, that's normal. Okay, conversion. This is just saying that the mechanism by which you would go from having your preference and getting your money back to instead being like, no, give me my 20% of this great outcome is you convert from the preferred stock to common stock. This is just saying you can one for one convert your one preferred share into one common share. There's some technicalities in there, but not worth getting into. Um, so okay, voting rights. Yeah. Before d diving in here, we should note and this is a great thing that's pointed out in Brad Feld's venture deals. Every term that we have talked about so far has been an economic term. And this is the first time that we have a control term. And really everything in a term sheet falls into one or the other, where all the economic terms are about really sort of what am I owning in the business? And in what scenarios do I own what and get what money? And then the control terms are really about the board dynamics and what really what control do I have over the company and what rights do I have as an investor? So in the standard series seed term sheet, we have copied this word for word into our term sheet. The investors in the round get as control rights that approval of a majority of them is required to, one, adversely change the rates of the preferred stock so that the rest of the company can't say like, hey, screw you guys, we're going to take away your rights. Two, uh, change the authorized number of shares. This could be like massively diluting them uh, without their authorization three this is essentially raising the next round of capital so this is an important you know important thing to think about it here. means whoever issued this term sheet is saying hey if you're going to go raise money again you need to check with me first exactly and that makes sense because otherwise you could go uh, the next day turn around and go do a deal with somebody and say like hey i want to cram down those people I just invested in. I'll let you invest at way better terms. And then you'll issue me as a founder a lot more options to re-up my stake. And anyway, that would be like a really dark arts way of doing this. This is to protect that. Now, as an entrepreneur, though, 
you need to realize you will give this right away. This is standard in the literally the standard series seed document. This means that the majority of the investors in your seed round or A, they can veto your next round of financing. So this is a little bit like a marriage contract. <laughs> this is even more teeth than a marriage contract. You are you are getting married to these people and they have a lot of control over your company. So back to alignment and making sure your relationship is good, you better make sure <laughs> you feel comfortable on both sides with this relationship. It's, it's kind of crazy to think about because it's in all likelihood, this will not be the last time that your business needs a capital infusion that does not come from revenue. And so what you're basically saying is you're, you're giving this investor the right to let your company die if you need to raise more capital and they don't want you to raise more capital on for, for whatever reason. Now, fortunately, they're very incentivized for you to stay alive as a business by the nature of their, <laughs> yes. they're plowing mil- right. millions of dollars into the business. But, you know, they have the right to say, eh, nope, you can't do that. You bring up a good point, Ben, that like, again, it comes back to alignment of incentives. Okay, next is redeem or repurchase shares. Um, this is basically saying that like, you won't cash out other people before cashing out them. Uh, declare or pay any dividend. Uh, relatedly doing that via dividends um which is super uh, rare like let's let's for a moment say like there's there's some talk of dividends in here that's not really a thing in startups okay next change the number of directors so you can't like load up the board with you know all your cronies on either side (laughs) and then very important this last one seven liquidate or dissolve including any change of control this is saying that you need the approval of your majority of your investors to sell the company or, or, or shut down the company. You know, again, super important. This actually very, very rarely would this you know, kind of come to blows. But in you know the previous era of venture capital, it did all the time of like company wants to acquire the company for X amount of dollars, say $10 million. Investors are like, that doesn't move the needle for my fund. I'm going to block this sale. But the founders are like, but this would be life-changing money to me. And the angels um, are like, this is actually a good multiple. Yep, exactly. Again, you know, it's very rare these days like, Usually everybody's pretty aligned when you invest, but just another thing to keep in mind that you are giving investors this level of control over your company. Okay, documentation. This is referring to what we were talking about half an hour ago, that uh, this is a set of terms that will then be documented by the lawyers. And so this is saying the type of documentation that is going to be used here is standard documents, uh, in this case, from the automated document generator at CoolyGo.com, which is... Um, <laughs> awesome and actually really you know great the point here is the reason this was all done was to save money on legal costs like use a document generator and have lawyers like work off of that versus have lawyers like literally draft up reinvent the wheel every time this is a really good uh, uh time to talk about the costs incurred in doing this because one thing you're doing as you're building out your financial model for what are you going to do with the cash from this round um, you should understand how much the financing itself is going to cost now david you're probably going to say this is high because i suspect the way that uh that that you do it and the way that it kind of happens among seed f- funds in the in the valley is probably a little bit different uh at, but maybe not it's probably going to cost you about $25,000 on the company side and about $25,000 on the investor side. And it is uh, uh, up to the company to pay both of those out of pocket after the transaction closes. So if the deal falls through for any reason, then the investors eat it. But uh, in all likelihood, uh, uh, the company is going to be paying for both. And it is a pretty significant bill. I would say we usually see, yeah, about 25K sounds about right on the company side, 25 to 30K. Uh, we see 10 to 15 on the investor side, but, you know, it just depends on what law firms are willing to do it for. <laughs> yep. And it also depends how much uh, standardization there is. I mean, if you're using a, a standard term sheet or perhaps you've done a, a deal before with that investor under very similar terms and you want to repurpose docs or something like that, you can often uh, um, get it done cheaper save a lot of yeah it comes down to how many hours both partners and associates at the respective law firms are going to spend on this okay uh financial information uh this is basically getting the rights going forward to have access to the quarterly or annual financials of the company this is important for you know major investors like I said, wave, you know, we own a large portion of the cap table of the companies. We need to know uh, your quarterly financial results. And we need to also have a function to make you as a company uh, actually uh, do your financials in accordance with GAP uh, every quarter. Because, you know, otherwise the SEC would be unhappy with is, all of us. Is it actually GAP? Do the, do the companies have to do GAP financials? Uh, yeah. 
you can debate whether you should have them audited or not. Typically, what we do is unaudited quarterly financials and then audited annual financials. You can debate whether you actually need the audit in the early days annually. We, we often waive the audit for a year or two. But once you're operating for a while and you have you know significant revenue, like it's, it's important to get audits regularly. Um, and this is because, you know, at the worst case, fraud preventing that, but at a, you know, less than that is just inconsistencies, improper accounting, you know, this leads to massive problems as you're setting up the company to ultimately have, you know, an exit, be it an acquisition or an IPO. These things are like, (laughs) that's going to get looked at in diligence. Yeah, exactly. And starting sooner is better. So David, um, I noticed this little thing in here about major purchasers. So if you're going to put in two million, and then this other firm's going to put in two hundred and fifty k, they asked me for a board observer seat, and I said no. I'd like to keep my board small, and I just bring you on as the lead investor on my board. Do they have inf- financial information rights, even though they're not on the board? How does that work, and what does that have to do with major purchasers? Well, that's where the concept of major purchasers comes in. Yeah, this is a negotiated term and and typically goes exactly as you said, Ben. There's a smaller investor coming in. Does the lead investor and do the founders of the company think that that smaller investor deserves to have the right for for financial information going forward, but also pro rata, right, which we're going to get into in a sec. And, you know, that depends. I've seen I have set the threshold such that for being a major purchaser such that only the lead uh, has those rights if it's mostly individuals coming in below that i've said it so that pretty much everybody has those rights um it really just depends on the dynamics of the relationship cool participation right okay so this is much more important in practice than financial information participation rate or often called a pro rata rate this is saying that anybody who is a major purchaser is the threshold to define here all your large investors will have the right in future financings to invest enough money in those financings to keep their percentage ownership in the company constant versus being diluted. Um, this is super important as an institutional investor, like a venture firm, like Wave or anybody. We we reserve capital to invest beyond our initial investment in companies, and that's to keep our ownership. Otherwise, as companies raise a bunch of capital along the way, we'd get diluted and own less and less. And, and that's like uh, half, right? Like of, of a fund. I mean, I, I, I think uh, you reserve half or more of, of your capital yeah. for follow-ons. It totally depends on the fund and the strategy, and it's evolving all the time. Uh, some funds will it is more than half it's two thirds or even 75% of the capital is reserved for later rounds versus the current round because we're pretty concentrated at wave. We're about two thirds up front, one third reserved, but we're, so we're pretty far on the spectrum. The other end, in any case, a significant portion of the fund is going to be reserved for investing in future rounds of the company. And so this is important because it provides protection that your existing early investors won't get boxed out in later rounds by new investors coming in and saying, Hey, I want to take all of this round. Right. So think about this. Let's say that I'm investing as a venture firm um, a million of this this 10 million post round. So I have 10% of the company. And in the next round, the company sells 20% or let's say 25% and a 10% option pool. So there's 35% dilution happening. So all of a sudden, my 10% that I, I was super happy to own of this company, you know, I'm now down to 6.5%. And if I didn't have a pro rata right, like, holy crap, I just, I, you know, the way that I was looking at, boy, if this company hits a billion dollar valuation, my, my fund's sitting pretty to, whoa, that's a pretty big haircut. And, and uh, if this is the one winner in my fund, gosh, it's not going to move the needle the way that I thought it was. And so pro rata rights are in there really to, to you know, help investors in, in the case that things are going well at the company to not take too much dilution in the subsequent round after they invest, like right away, in all likelihood, and and David, I, I want to turn it back over to you, you're not going to have this right forever, number one, and two, you're not going to have the capital forever, because if the company to, keeps, yeah, right. <laughs> keeps growing and growing and growing, you know, if you want to somehow preserve 35% of your investment and the company is raising at a $700 million valuation, you got to put a lot of capital to work because the share price just went way up. And so, David, if I have a pro rata right from the seed and I'm an investor, what tends to happen in the Series A and what tends to happen then in the Series B? Well, it really depends. If you're 
if the firm that led your seed is a large venture firm, you know, a series A or, you know, multi-stage firm, then they're probably going to want to do it <laughs> all the way. If you're a dedicated seed fund like us, that's a smaller, we're a $55 million fund. We will look to do our full pro rata in the A or as much as close to it as we can afford, depending on how much money you're raising and then drop off uh, thereafter because we just won't have the capital to invest or, or we may do, uh, have our, have our do co-investments with our LPs or it's really a case by case basis. But the point is like the most important thing is sort of the next round for us. And that's really how you should think about it on a round by round basis. Now, to be clear on all of this, this is not saying your investors get to keep their same ownership in the next round for free. They have to put the money in. uh, So you're still getting the capital. It's just that they have a right to do part of your next round. Rather than that next lead investor getting to take all of it. Yep, exactly. Um, Okay, board. This is very straightforward. This is just saying who is going to be on the board after the round closes. Typically, not always, but typically the lead investor in a given round will join the board. We always do at at Wave. Let's see. Then uh, expenses, that's what we were talking about earlier, about these these are the legal expenses associated with the round. Um, Now, there is, you could say, wait a minute, why is the company paying for the (laughs) investor's expenses I did just breeze over that, didn't I? You did just breeze over that. (laughs) Uh, This is occasionally does change. But at the end of the day, the investor and the fund is investing the money in the company. A cost of doing business is getting the round done. And so the investor is bringing the money. That money should pay for the legal fees of getting the round done is the justification. There's also a practical element to this too, which is that companies are set up as companies, obviously, and raise money. And that goes into operations of the company broadly and doesn't really affect the uh individual fortunes of any one person at the company whereas funds are not set up as companies funds are pools of money oh come on this this could be this could be handled there's funds have not only the the investable capital but they also have you know fees and then there's fundraising expenses which gets carved out you could see legal expenses getting carved out with fundraising expenses or something like that if if uh, people actually wanted to structure it that way you totally could. It's not typically common, though. So, yeah, this, the, this is all the justification. At the end of the day, it's just pretty standard right now. And again, these things ebb and flow. Okay, uh, future rights. Now, this is an interesting one. Uh, I've seen this stay in. I've seen this get struck or negotiated away. This is basically saying because this is a fairly light term sheet compared to when you raise uh, larger rounds later in the company, they tend to be more control terms associated with them this is saying essentially a an M- essentially a most favored nations clause that your investors currently at the seed any future rights that control rights you would give to investors they are also going to get those could go either way i mean depends what those future rights are at, th- at the end of the day your in- existing investors also have a block on you being able to raise the next round so if they really hate those rights they have a you know a, a, a big red button on the negotiations that they can push anyway okay and then last meaningful term key holder matters <laughs> it's a weird name for it we call this founder vesting in our uh, our term sheets which is what it is this is setting or resetting the terms of vesting of your equity as a founder in the company and then also what happens to your equity upon an acquisition so this is like of all these kind of other ancillary terms one of if not the most important for you as a founder um as you're negotiating term and, sheets. and often the toughest to swallow because i think you know david one of the things that i like about us doing this episode is because uh, is that i think it it's nice to like signal to a lot of people before they begin a fundraise process like what this could look like because i think a lot of people hear one or two economic terms and then that's sort of in their head of okay cool this is all that's going to be in that document and then they see this here that says oh i know you've been working on this business for three years and i know you put yourself on a four-year vest but uh we're going to reset it back to basically that you've only vested for one year, even though you've been working on it for three and you still have three more years to go. And that is a gnarly thing to stomach if you didn't didn't think about it beforehand. And so I think love to open up a little discussion here of sort of why that happens, how common that is. Yeah, what have you seen? Yeah, totally. Well, one, at the seed stage, this is typically not that controversial because typically the company has recently been started or just been started and so whatever vesting you've put in place is typically acceptable you know to us a wave also like we're usually investing right as companies are getting started and as a founder 
unless you are a solo founder, if you have co-founders, you definitely want to have vesting on your and your co-founders stock. Uh, because should one of you just decide to leave at some point uh, before vesting, then you would walk away with a huge portion of the equity in the company and not be working on the company anymore without you know earning it over, over vesting, just like a, an employee would in the option pool. Now, where exactly, Ben, as you were saying, where this gets controversial is in later rounds, investors may and often do want to reset your vesting um, as a founder. And they could and incentivize you by issuing more shares, which is what you tend to see as these re-ups in the Series B, C, D. But often in the Series A, it's taken a long time to find product market fit, and you could be 75, 80% of the way through your 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 vested shares. And it would be hugely dilutive to the whole cap table to issue you enough to incentivize you for the amount of work still ahead. So... So instead, they reset your vesting so that you have to stick around to for X number of years to re-earn, uh, revest uh, shares that you may have already vested. And that can indeed be a tough pill to swallow. From an investor standpoint, though, um, you know, if you're going to be fully vested in six months, they're investing in you. They want to make sure you stick around. Um, you know, it's a negotiation. Yeah, it's funny. I'll give a quick anecdote. I was talking to a friend who... Um uh, did a YC company, uh, was backed by Sequoia in the Series A, was exactly the scenario, was three years into a four-year vest, got wound back to a, basically counting all that as, as one year of vesting. And um, he later sold the Which company for- Which is what for, often happens. Yeah, yeah, for hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, we were having lunch and I remember him saying like, as much as I was pissed at the time and thought those were like, you know, those guys were total jerks, we had- way more than half the work still in front of us. And to the extent that the vesting represents sort of the the value that you need to have the business create and the value you need to contribute to the business, you put the company in kind of a tough position if a dramatic amount of the work is still ahead, but you vested a dramatic amount. You know, this is always something I try and keep in mind, I think, when looking at my vesting in anything is always like, well, I should be intellectually honest with myself, even though the vesting says one thing, you know, the the amount of value creation is really the ultimate truth. And sometimes things need to change in order to uh, facilitate that value creation. And so there's an intellectual honesty that should sort of always happen where you're, it's like your vesting sort of doesn't matter as much as if you don't feel that the business is most of the way there, you shouldn't emotionally feel like your vesting is most of the way there. Mm -hmm. Now, also, this is back to the relationship and alignment of incentives. This should never, like, this can be a negotiation sticking point sometimes in rounds getting done, but this should never be an issue because incentives should be aligned around value maximization in the company. And so if you're a founder, a significant portion of your net worth presumably is tied up in the company. And if you're thinking about leaving, presumably that would be pretty bad for the company. Maybe uh, if it's good for the company, then your investors might be happy about you leaving. <laughs> um, uh, and then you should re-examine in your life. But uh, <laughs> assuming that's not the case, even if you are fully vested, like uh, today when uh, the uh, Jeff and Mackenzie Bezos uh, uh, divorce settlement was announced, is an interesting day to talk about this. But Jeff Bezos is fully vested in Amazon he's also very incentivized to stick around and continue <laughs> creating value for his investment in the company. Right. And, you know, I should, we should go back to that other point of like, there are ways to continue to incentivize people beyond, you know, taking away things that are already vested, like issuing new shares, but the shares kind of have to already be a worth a lot in order to make that material. Yep, totally. Um, oh, uh, one more, uh, I forgot, related to founder vesting, acceleration. So what does acceleration mean? This means that should the company be acquired, what happens to the portion of your stock that is not yet vested? Does it get accelerated? Do you get it all uh, immediately? Or do you have to wait uh, even until post-acquisition and stay at the acquirer while you continue to vest into that value? David, we had a great uh, Perkins Coie explanation of this a couple episodes ago. Oh, that's ago. right. That's right. We did. Well, I can refer everybody back to that. <laughs> the real quick single trigger means that there is one trigger which triggers full acceleration, which is a, an acquisition happening. Double trigger means two things have to happen. You have to get acquired and then you have to be fired by that company terminated without cause. Um, so essentially made redundant. They say, hey, goodbye. 
the reality is people get all bent around the axle around whether you have acceleration or single or double trigger acceleration. The reality is it doesn't matter that much what you have in the documents because an M&A acquirer is going to renegotiate everything at the time of acquisition anyway. Full disclosure, which should be all over this episode, I am not a lawyer, neither is David. I don't think they <laughs> yes. can actually renegotiate what it says in your employment agreement or in the the definitive documents, but what they can do is change things like earnouts and the amount of stock that you get in the company that's acquiring you and that sort of thing. And the terms of your employment with the uh, acquiring company. There, there are ways around all of whatever is in your current docs. There are ways for acquirers to rewrite whatever rules they want. But an interest, an interesting point though is whatever is in your docs is the starting point for negotiations with the acquirer. So the more friendly it is to you, the better the starting point for you. This is where I'm glad this is like only an LP episode, and I think uh, a lot <laughs> of this is stuff that like we're not going to go talk about this to tens of thousands of people on the internet but super happy to do it uh, uh, with lps the thing that ends up mattering the most for venture firms is really the relationship with the founders and being there through thick and thin because a lot of the times during an acquisition companies will try and pull the craziest stuff the the founders ultimately get to be the the single point of advocacy for everyone for employees for existing investors and it's really a, it's really about the relationship that 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 you have and and trusting that that the founder is going to represent the interests of everyone uh, as part of the deal and and there are ways for that not to happen and i think that uh, you know, specifically companies can say, well, we're going to buy you for a low amount, but we're going to incentivize you, you and you with these big bonuses. And I, I think uh, it comes down to relationships and it comes down to uh, empowering the, the founder to be the advocate for everybody on the cap table. This is a great place to wrap all this up because it really brings it back to one of our previous LP episodes and my wonderful and fantastic partner sarah adler here at wave you know she was head of m&a at, at, at drop for many years she was well first at facebook and then head of m&a at dropbox and, and and airbnb and she had such a fantastic reputation in silicon valley even being on the acquirer side at companies which typically is a you know adversarial negotiating position here because she realized she was long-term greedy not short-term greedy and really whether it's any kind of negotiation or deal whether it's an acquisition or whether it's a term sheet and a venture round there are two ways to approach it you can be long-term greedy or you can be short-term greedy and silicon valley runs on relationships and relationships are built when both sides are mutually long-term greedy. <laughs> and that's really, you know, the biggest piece of advice I think I certainly would give. Then you can agree or disagree about for any side in a, a venture deal is be long-term greedy and make sure your partner on the other side of the table is too and be aligned with them around that. And whatever terms are in the term sheet are meaningless if you don't have that relationship-driven alignment. Well, there is one more thing that says binding terms. Um, no. <laughs> uh, that's right. We're leaving out the last term. This is the only binding term in the agreement <laughs> that you sign, the, t the term sheet, which just basically says uh, the period of which you will have ex exclusive negotiations in good faith to try and close the round around these terms. Typically 30 days from when you sign, but I have never once seen this be uh, actually referred to or thought of again after the term sheet is signed. Well, David, do you want to do some quick follow-up from our, our Lyft episode before winding this one down? Yeah, great. Let's do it. Um, we had a couple little tidbits that didn't quite make it into the episode that we wanted to share yeah. with LPs. Yeah, listeners, um, one, one thing that's fun about the LP show is uh, David and I always have these like gigantic piles of notes and we like sort of text afterwards and we're like, oh, we didn't get to tell this story or that story. Uh, and it's fun to kind of have an outlet to be able to share them because some of these are like pretty wild, but just don't fit in the narrative correctly and or we don't know what to make of them and don't necessarily want to like be broadcasting out to the world stuff that uh, might be somebody's dirty laundry. Yeah, totally. First, one of my favorites, I, this was just complete oversight during the episode that we didn't get this in. Um, about a year after Lyft, uh, after the pivot to Lyft uh, within Zimride, uh, I believe it was July 2013, the company reincorporated from Zimride, reincorporated as Lyft, and they sold the assets of Zimride. No employees went with this. Uh, so no negotiation of uh, single or double trigger acceleration. They sold the, um, the Zimride assets to Enterprise Rent-A-Car. <laughs> 
total fun aside, which I believe had also acquired Zipcar at that point. Uh, I thought it wasn't that Avis. I could be wrong. Oh on that, no, but... you're right. It was Avis. Okay. Uh, I can't keep these rental car companies straight. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's one. I have two points here that came in the series. I can't remember what it was. H. It was the round last year uh, led by Capital G. There were two investors of note that I think uh, it, when looking into the S1 is is interesting to peel back uh, a little bit further. So one was a person named Louis Gonda uh, who put in uh, $500,000 along with, uh, with, with that investment. Um, and then another $2.5 million from Lexington Ventures, which is his, his venture fund. Um, that is Logan Green's father-in-law. And uh, uh, a <laughs> nice, it all in the family. Yeah, a nice little $3 million investment for a, a, a nice IPO with a pop that hopefully uh, continues to go up uh, just a year later. So that was one. That was the first thing I found. I texted it to David and was like, whoa, did you see this? <laughs> so the more fun thing is when you keep digging in a little further, there is a group called Oasis Investment Partners that as a part of that round put in $25 million. And I was like, what is Oasis Investment Partners? So, you know, you go in the SEC and you look in their Edgar thing. They filed, I think it's a Form D for when they raised that that fund. The entire size of that vehicle was $25 million. And you're like, okay, well, wh- what happened there? It looks like that fund was raised exclusively to invest. You know, it's like, I guess, a special purpose vehicle. It has two partners, the first of which is the COO of Lyft, John McNeil. And the other is Phil Deutsch, the famed energy investor and the former president of Social Capital, which is a whole other uh, uh, a whole other story. I don't have a lot of comment there. That I think in the the other thing to note in the SEC document is that uh, there were twenty people who had already committed by the time they had filed the Form D. But uh, interesting to see that that SPV uh, be raised there and, and invest the whole thing right before um, or or sort of in that last round before the IPO. Yeah, super interesting. Other real quick piece of follow-up is news came out today that acquired supervillain Carl Icahn. We really, I really want to have Carl on the show. If anybody, if you work with Carl uh, or you know, Carl, if you're listening, like please hit us up. Acquired FM. I think at I think I would know com. if uh, Carl became uh, an LP. <laughs> LPs, yeah. y'all know. We're like, monitoring. D- David and I send out a, a personal welcome. I, unless Carl had a very secret email address, he may use an alias. Yeah, That's he could true. use an alias. That's very true. <laughs> Anyway, we would love to have you on the show. But turns out that he sold his position in Lyft before the IPO to George Soros, of all people. (laughs) So he still probably made a lot of money. Probably. We don't know the price at which he sold. Listeners, that was our best attempt to try and do term sheets in an hour. And uh, hopefully you either feel more armed uh, to go and and understand this world before um, having to go through it, or uh, maybe you had some things clarified that you always sort of wondered about, or maybe you were like, why on earth did I make it this far in an episode of these two guys who aren't lawyers reading a legal document? Um, But either way, uh, uh, David, I had fun, so. Yeah, me too, as always. Yep. All right. Well, LPs, uh, if you're enjoying it, feel free to uh, uh, shout it from the hilltops and invite others to become an LP too. Um, the uh, the continued growth has been uh, super fun for us. And um, please know you are uh, uh, really enabling us to to grow the show and to make Acquired bigger and better than ever and, and bring on awesome guests and get to be with them in person. I think a lot of you saw the the, the tweet that we put out, but the, the Lyft episode was by far our, our biggest ever. And I think we're in a really great place. And uh, uh, Dave and I just booked some flights for a really sweet guest later on in season four. So thank you for helping us to keep growing the show. And, and uh, we love doing it. Yeah. Can't wait for the next one. Yep. All right. See you later, David. Later.